Well, I'm guessing we have all at one time or another had the great experience of being stood up, haven't we? Everybody's been stood up at least once. I I was stood up recently out in front of Ruby Tuesdays, stood there for a while. And, you know, I I discovered that when you're being stood up, you go through a range of emotions. You you start with kind of wondering. You, You wonder if you've got the right time. You wonder if you're at the right restaurant. You, you wonder where they are. You wonder if everything is okay. And after you've wondered for a while, then you start trying to verify. You, you verify where they are. You call home. You call the office. You call somebody who might know where they are and what's happening. And let's say for the sake of this morning that we can't verify that. So, so then now we move into waffling. We, we waffle back and forth. We waffle on the one hand of being concerned about their well-being and hoping everything's okay to on the other hand being angry because they're wasting my afternoon. I've got things to do, places to go, people to see. Standing out in front of Ruby Tuesdays was not in my agenda. So we kind of waffle back and forth and then, then we move to questioning. Do I go in and eat by myself? Do I leave and as soon as I pull off the parking lot, they pull in and think I stood them up? Oh, the confusion of it all. You know, I guess in the whole spectrum of being stood up, and there is a spectrum. You know, the kind of stood up I got, that's just more of an annoyance. Something not quite working out. I imagine some of you in here, you got stood up and it was an annoyance. It was a big deal. It was a big letdown, a big disappointment. Somebody was not where they should have been. Somebody was not doing what they should have been doing. That's hard. It's part of life. Here's a bigger question. How do you and I handle it? How are we supposed to work through it when God stands us up? You're saying God would stand us up? Well, you know, actually... No, I guess I'm not saying God would stand us up, but you know what I am saying? I'm saying from our perspective, that's what we'll think. That's what we'll feel. That's, that's the only way we know how to interpret what is going on. We feel like God didn't show up. He, he stood us up. We waited as we were commanded. We trusted as we were commanded. And things, things got worse. Things didn't work out at all. God didn't show up for us. How do we deal with that? Well, we come today to a passage that deals with this, I think, very human experience head on. And it gives us the answers we need. Would you turn with me this morning to John chapter 11? John chapter 11, fourth gospel, fourth book into the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some in the chairs spread out among you in front of you. Uh, grab one and read along with us. John chapter 11. As I said, we're looking now at the seventh of seven signs. We're, we're about to be done with one of our segments of studying the Gospel of John. Today is the last sign that Jesus did in the Gospel of John that we're going to look at. Next week, we're going to begin with the I am statements. And we're going to begin discovering who Christ is what he is for you and for me. We're going to see one of those I am statements here in our passage today, but we'll we'll be studying it in the weeks to come. We look today, I think, at one of the most profound, one of the most amazing of all of Jesus' signs. He raises a man from the dead. And I'm not talking about he died a few minutes ago when and Jesus resuscitates him. I'm talking about stinking dead. You're going to find out what I mean in just a moment. I'm talking about being in the grave for days. 
Let's turn and look at this story. I'm going to read this a little bit differently. I'm going to go to the end of the story first. Look at verse 38. John 11, verse 38. It says, Then Jesus, angry in himself again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, he, uh, he, he already stinks. I mean, it's been four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me because of the crowd standing here. I said this so they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Man, what? What a miracle. What a sign. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, I just did you a great favor by reading the end of the story first, because John chapter 11 has about as much tension in it as you get in any chapter of the Bible, because we're dealing with a God whom we love, a God whom we're supposed to trust, who appears to not show up. Let's look and see that part of it. Turn back to the beginning of the story. Let me read a few verses here. Verse one. Now, a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and then wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. Now, this is a, a huge story. John 11, 1 to, to 44. And there's more here than I can handle, more than I can tackle in one day. But I want to use this passage today to try to answer three questions for us. The first question I want to answer is, what is the most important thing in life? The second question, what is God doing in my life? And the third question, very important, is Jesus limited in my life? Is he limited in what he can do? Now, as we read our passage here Today, these last verses I just read, the beginning of the story, it is very clear that Jesus is very close friends, very close in relationship with these two sisters and their brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I think it's important to see that. I think it's important to see it for two reasons. One, just noting little tidbits about the life of Christ. You know, I think sometimes as we read through the gospel, it's easy for us to kind of get stuck in the idea that, that Jesus only had 12 friends. Jesus only hung around these 12 guys. We call them disciples. Later, we're going to call them apostles. And we kind of get stuck thinking there's really no other relationships here. But then we come along a passage like this and say, wow, Jesus obviously had some very close friends. We see these two sisters and this brother described here. Twice it refers to the love Jesus had for them. 
I think there's a second reason it's very important to to note and to see this relationship because it really draws on the expectation that you and I have of God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when we look through the the signs that Jesus has done in the Gospel of John, we've seen him heal the lame and the blind. Now, I, I don't know what Lazarus problem is. It doesn't tell us why he's sick or what he's dealing with. But when we see what he's already done, man, we can certainly anticipate, we can certainly expect that whatever Lazarus is dealing with, he can change, he can heal, he can touch that, he can fix that. That's a very fair expectation. But even more than that, I look through some of these other signs and we've seen Jesus heal people who didn't even demonstrate any faith in him. Well, Mary, Martha and Lazarus, man, they demonstrate great faith, great belief in Christ, shouldn't they expect that God will show up for them? That, that Jesus will show up for them? Uh, Jesus healed people who didn't even ask to be healed. And now here his very close friends are Mary, Martha and Lazarus, and they are asking. They are believing. Certainly they can expect God to show up. Certainly they can expect God to do something in their lives. I think they're very similar to, well, to a lot of us in this room. And I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I, I love him. I'm, I'm at church. I'm, I'm trying to understand what his word says. I'm trying to live like he tells me to live. I, I ought to be able to anticipate some things. I, I ought to be able to expect God to show up in my life. Seems like a fair expectation, doesn't it? Well, Jesus gets the news about Lazarus condition. And right away, he says, you know what? Everything's going to be okay. This is all going to this is all going to work out. And we say, yay, Lord, way to go. Praise God. Another answered prayer. There's just one problem. Lazarus is already dead. Yeah, as Jesus gets this message, when you do the math of the four days and the time for travel and all that, Jesus more than likely or Lazarus more than likely is already dead. As a matter of fact, when Mary and Martha sent that messenger to Jesus, I'm guessing that messenger wasn't far out of the eyesight of Mary and Martha when Lazarus passed away. So why is, why is Jesus saying everything's going to be okay when Lazarus is already dead? When Mary and Martha are already in the throes of grief, when they're already experiencing great loss, he says everything's going to work out. Well, it is all going to work out. It's going to work out from God's perspective. And noticed in these verses, verses five and six, those are some of the strangest verses I read in the Bible or the strangest sounding Notice it notes how much Jesus loves these three people. So then look at verse six. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. That doesn't sound right, does it? We, normally, we don't couple together the word love and not showing up. Love and delay. We don't put those ideas together. Folks, think about it. Think about uh, somebody you love and care a lot about. Somebody that, that loves and cares a lot about you. When you communicate a need to them. And you communicate that there is a sense of urgency. That, that, I mean, this is really hurting. This is really important to me. Don't you kind of expect that they're going to stop what they're doing and hone in and give you their attention? 
Yeah, we do. We absolutely, I mean, I need, I need you to see me. I, I need you to recognize what's going on in my life. And more importantly, I need you to do something. And if somebody that you loved and that loved you, and here you have poured out your heart, you've expressed some great need, and they say, you know what, I'll get, yeah, yeah, you know, give me a couple of days, I'll be there. That's not going to say, I love you. But that's what's happening here. Jesus says he loves them. It refers to the love, but then he delays. He waits two more days. Let me put a question in your mind, just something for you to think on for a moment. Are you okay with things not working out from your perspective so that they work out from God's perspective? Are you okay with things not, not taking place like you would want, like, like you would hope for, so that they happen, so that they take place the way God wants? Just think on that for a moment. Now, now let's come back here and let, let's try to understand a little bit about the, the mindset uh, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and what they're going through. Now, we have to imagine a little bit more on Lazarus. He, he doesn't have any speaking lines in this story. But imagine, if you will, he's laying there in bed. Now, we know he's about to die. So, I mean, we can imagine he's, he's in pain. Maybe he's sweating. Maybe he's shaking. He's hurting. He's confused. Maybe he's fearful. Maybe he knows this, this is it. I'm about to die. But Mary and Martha are saying, hold on, Lazarus. Hold on. We've sent a message to Jesus. Jesus is on the way. Now, as close as he is to Jesus, maybe with the things he's seen Jesus do, in my imagination, in my mind's eye, I am watching Lazarus stare at the door. He is laying in bed and he is staring at that door and maybe the sun's coming in and he is hoping, he is waiting for that moment when he sees the silhouette of his good friend Jesus. He knows, man, when Jesus gets here, it's going to be better. When Jesus gets here, this is, a, this is all going to be over. It's all going to be... And then he dies. Hey, that that didn't work out like I was hoping. That, that's that's not what I was thinking. You know, I, I don't know what goes through a person's thought that last breath or that last two, but I know he was looking for Jesus. And I know he drew that last breath or two without seeing him. Now, Martha and Mary, we don't have to imagine as much. It, it kind of tells us where they are. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, still in chapter 11. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, look at this phrase. If you'd been here. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Is, is Martha taking a little jab at Jesus? Is, is, is there a little bit of a dig in that statement? You know what, I don't think so. And I don't think so because of the dialogue that follows. We're going to look at that dialogue in a moment. But in the dialogue that follows, it is very clear that Martha still has great faith, great respect, great love for Jesus. I don't really think she's intending to be rude. I don't think she's tending to be accusatory. I think she's just being truthful. 
She's being honest. Lord, I, I was there. I, I saw you do that in that sick person's life. And I, I saw you give sight to that blind person. I know your power. I know your ability. And I know if you'd been here on Monday, oh, my brother would be alive. You know, I think even with a sense of faith and love, there can be a little bit of a sense of you, you didn't come. You weren't there. I mean, when that happens, we feel what? We feel stood up. Look at Mary in verse 32. Very, very similar. Verse 32, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him. Well, there it is again. Lord, if you'd been here. My brother would not have died. It's not unusual that they're saying the exact same thing, is it? I mean, you know, Lazarus has passed away. You know, when that day, two, three days that followed, they were they were crying, they were hugging, they were on each other's shoulder, they were talking to people. And how, when you're sitting around talking, many of us have been there. We've had a death in the family, and and we're talking about what's happened and how we feel. How would they not say, "Gosh, man, if if if, if the message would have gotten to him in time, if if Jesus would have been here, what what could have been, what what would have happened, if you'd been here." But you weren't. You weren't here. And of course, you know what? Mary and Martha don't know the half of it. They don't know what you and I know. They don't know that the reason Jesus wasn't there was on purpose. He wasn't held up. There wasn't traffic. He wasn't at some important meeting. He wasn't attending to some other business. The scripture doesn't give us any reason other than he chose to not go. He chose to delay. Why? I mean, death's a pretty big thing, isn't it? Man, God, I've got a big need and and you would just choose to not show up. Why? Well, verse four answers that question for us. It is so the glory of God can be revealed. And in that, that the Son of God and His glory will be revealed. Folks, the biggest thing in life, the most important thing in life, is God's glory. God's glory, God being seen, God being exalted, God being lifted up, is bigger, it's more important than their happiness. Man, are we, are we comfortable with a statement like that? Are, are we okay with that? You know, I think sitting here in church, we probably would say, yeah, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, that's, that's what it's supposed to be about. God, God's supposed to be the center. It, it's all about Him. Yeah, I'm comfortable with that. But then I think when we leave here, we go, man, I... I thought there was supposed to be a little bit of a trade-off here. You know, God, I'll make it all about you, and I'm kind of counting on you making it all about me. God, I'll be, I'll be centered on you, and, and you'll be centered on me. And hey, by the way, there's actually plenty of verses that would lead us to that very idea. Psalm 37.4 says, Randy, you delight in me, and I'll give you the desires of your heart. See, there's a trade-off. Matthew chapter 6, Randy, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You make it all about me and I'll take care of all that other stuff in your life. See, it seems to be a trade-off there. 
So maybe while we're comfortable saying it's all about God, we are expecting things work out pretty good for us in this deal. I was reading a book the other day unrelated to my study of John 11, but at the same time that I was studying this passage, there's a book by John Piper. He's a pastor, he's an author, and he, and he had a statement in this book that really fit right in with what I was grappling with in John 11. And in that comment, he says this, God's ultimate commitment is to himself, not to us. At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, the most important thing in life is that God is committed to himself, not to us. We'll try to understand that a little bit more in just a moment. But I want to remind you of a key command in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says we are to do everything for God's glory. Every thought, every action, every response, everything going on in my life tomorrow, everything going on in my life in this week ahead is to be about God being seen, God being exalted, God being lifted up, God being seen for who He is. And God knows how to do that with my life. From the, from the highs in my life to the lows in my life and to most of that stuff that's right in between. You know why God can do that? Because He has perfect knowledge. He has absolutely perfect knowledge. He also has the big, big, big picture, doesn't He? Do you know that you and I are never operating with that information? We are always looking at everything. I'm looking at my desires, my wants, my agenda. And folks, no matter how much you love God, believe in God, and are seeking to follow God, it's pretty hard not to get right out of the front of my mind what I want. I mean, it's, it's always right there. What I want, how I see things, my desires, my agenda, it's always right up there at the front. But when I look at that, it's always limited in its scope. It's always limited in its knowledge. I don't have perfect knowledge. I often live like I have perfect knowledge. So do you. Who do you trust more than your own mind? Who do you trust more than yourself? When I look at something, I don't question myself. I think that, that's it. That's what I ought to do. But my, limit, my knowledge is always limited. And I never, never have the big picture. I never know what this moment's going to mean in eternity. I never know what's going on in the lives all around me. Or what, if I do know, it's very, very limited. So what did we just say? God's ultimate commitment is to himself and not to us. If we come in this moment and God is more committed to me than he is to himself, then he is committed to a flawed agenda. He is committed. He said, Rain, no matter what, I'm going to fulfill your plan. I'm going to fulfill your desire. I'm going to fulfill your agenda. If God commits himself to that, then he's just made a commitment to a flawed agenda. But if God stays true and committed to himself, then his responses and his actions are true and just and right and always in light of the big picture. And folks, that's good for us. It's good for us that God is committed to his plan and his agenda over and above our own. That God is more committed to his knowledge than he is our knowledge. Folks, this is not to say that we don't bring our desires. We don't bring our agenda and our plans to the Lord. The Lord invites us to do that. And in his graciousness and kindness, I have found in my life, he quite often fulfills my desires and my agenda. But when it's all said and done at the end of the day, his agenda takes priority. And the most important thing in life is not that I come out on top. It's that God come out on top. 
The most important thing in life is not that I win, it's that God wins. It's most important thing in life is not that I get exalted, but God gets exalted. The most important thing in life is God's glory. Second question. Second question, what's God doing in my life? Now, this question we're going to answer pretty briefly because I've been dealing with this question all through the Gospel of John. And I've already answered that question very simply. God is building faith in our lives. We say, well, that's good. I want a stronger faith. I want to believe greater in the Lord. But folks, think about the exercise that produces faith. If God is building faith, then that means by default, God is allowing things into my life that I probably don't like. He is allowing situations into my life where I don't understand what's going on. I can't see how this is going to work. I don't like where I am. It hurts where I am. But what happens in that moment, if I'm seeking to grow in my faith, is what happens is I begin to hold on to Christ more than the answer. I begin to desire Jesus more than the circumstance. You see, a growing faith produces a greater intimacy in Christ, a greater knowledge of Christ. We see that here in our passage. Look at verse 22. Still chapter 11, verse 22. Yet even now, this is Martha speaking, yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now, folks, isn't that a pretty profound statement of faith? Remember where Martha is. Remember the day she's living in. Her brother has just died. God did not show up on time. She is hurting. She is grieving. And it is in the midst of that that she makes that kind of statement of faith. That's pretty strong, isn't it? That's what a growing faith does. We begin to see God and desire God more than anything else going on around us in this world. God is building faith in our lives. And we need that faith to trust him when he's making life more about his glory than my happiness. God's building faith. Third question, is Jesus limited in what he can do in my life? Now, again, let's think about some of the signs we've seen as we've studied the Gospel of John. We've seen Jesus heal the lame and the blind and feed the 5,000 by multiplying those bread and fish. And remember the big jugs of of water, 20, 30-gallon jugs of water that he turned into wine? Now, let's, let's fast forward past all those miracles. You know all that wine he made? It ran out. You know all those people he fed that day? I'm guessing they woke up hungry the next morning. You know those people he healed? Every one of them died. Now clearly these signs show the power of God. 
Clearly, they show what he can do in our life and who he is. But folks, as big as our day in and day out problems might be, sickness, hunger, need, as big as those problems can be, they're not our real problem. You know what our big problem is? I'm going to die. You're going to die. Can, can Jesus do something about that? Can he do something that lasts? Something that is eternal? Can he conquer my greatest need? You know, it's interesting. Mary, Martha, they, they clearly demonstrate faith in this passage. They proclaim, they profess their faith. But did you know that throughout their proclamation of faith, they believe there's a limitation on Christ? If you'd been here. If you were here on Monday, and I don't, I don't know that that took place on Monday, but, but if you had been here on Monday, wow, wow, what would we have seen? We would have seen God do something big, God do something great. We would have seen a miracle if you'd been here on Monday. But it's Thursday. Over there, boy, God could have done something. But here... Do you see how they're implying that there's a limit? If there, yes, but now we're here. You, you, you can't do anything here. As a matter of fact, Mary has this great proclamation of faith in verse 22 when she says, I know you can do whatever. And Jesus says, OK, move that stone. Oh, well, I mean, Lord, I believe you can do whatever. But I mean, my brother, he's. You know, he's like stinking dead. He, he's been dead four days. Do you hear what's being implied in her voice? This is beyond you now. It's too late now. You can't do anything here now. Aren't you glad, by the way, that Jesus says all we need is the faith of a mustard seed? The Bible does not call us to ask, how much faith do I have? It says if you have any faith. He will move. Mary and Martha have faith enough to move God. But at the same time, it's not a perfect faith. It's a faith that needs to grow. They're implying a limit on Christ. By the way, that four days. Why did he wait four days? If Lazarus was already dead when the messenger got there, then why not go right then? I mean, it'd be the same impact, wouldn't it? To raise him at that moment. The Jews had a belief. Okay, this is not a biblical belief. It's not something God told them. The Jews had a belief that when a person died, that, the, that their spirit hovered around the body for guess how long? Four days. And they believed that that spirit was looking for an opportunity to re-enter the body, to, to come back to life. Could quite possibly it be that Jesus waited four days because he knew what everybody there would be thinking? And he wanted to wait until in everybody's mind, Lazarus was dead, dead, really dead, spirit gone. So that he could show his power and his authority over death. Oh, folks, let me tell you something. God might feel a million miles away from you right now. 
And it may look like into your life he can speak nothing, he can do nothing, he has not shown up. What I see here is God is always working. And his work is always moved by love. It was because he loved them that he waited. He wanted to bring them along in their faith to a more intimate relationship. It had a purpose in the delay that the power of God might be revealed in a dead, dead person. God loves you. He is working. There is a purpose in what he's doing, even if from your perspective right now, it looks like you've been stood up. Jesus Christ stood in front of that tomb. And he called that man out. Been dead four days, called him out. This sign points to the fact of the almighty all-powerful nature of Jesus Christ. He is God. He has power over life and death. He can, He will raise you. There is no limit to what Jesus can do. Now listen to me. For that kind of person, what kind of person? A person who has power over life and death. A person who moves with love and with purpose. For that kind of person, we can make life all about Him. And we can trust Him when it appears He's not making life all about us. Can I say that again? For that kind of person, we can make life all about Him. And we can trust that time period, that moment, when it appears He's not making life all about us. Now, it's time to go. We've we got we to leave Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Jesus. They're over here. They're laughing. They're dancing. They're crying. They're weeping. They're praying. They're hugging. They're having... Wouldn't you like to have seen the four of them after that moment? But we've got to go home. We've got to get to our cars. There's three things we've got to take with us to the car today. Number one, I must think in terms of everything being about God's glory. I must think in terms of everything is about God being seen. What does that mean? That means everything. That means tomorrow morning, somebody walks by my office and says something that hurts my feelings. Hey, God, how do I process that? How do I respond to that in a way that shows you? I get good news tomorrow. I get bad news tomorrow. God, how does that news Show your greatness. How does that news show your power? How do I live and react and respond in a way that points to, to you? I'm in a marriage that I'm, I'm not wholly satisfied in. God, how do I love, serve, deal with, respond to my mate in a way that shows how great and awesome you are? That lets people see you. I'm in a situation I don't like at all. God, how do you want to show yourself in that? Now, folks, standing here today, I can't answer all those questions. I can't tell you how God would answer all those questions. I can tell you the more you'll read Scripture, more you'll know what the answer in every single one of those areas is. What I'm saying today is that you and I need to learn to think in terms of everything being about God. How are you seen in this moment, Jesus? 
That's not a thought we think once a week. It's not a thought we think once a day. It's a thought running through our mind with everything going on all day long. Second thing we must leave here with, I must leave here with a commitment to look at every area of my life that I don't like as a place to grow in faith. Now, folks, we can grow in faith in every area of our life, whether we like it or not. The areas we don't like, that's just the obvious ones, right? I mean, if there's an area I don't like, that by definition is an area God's not doing what I want. God's not, God's not making this what I want. God's not doing what I thought I, I prayed for and He promised to do. Any area I don't like, that's an area I'm going to choose to believe God's got a purpose, He is loving, and He is growing my faith. Folks, that principle will utterly, totally change your life. It will change the way you see every person in every situation. It, the world is not a random attack against me. The world is an opportunity for me to know my God better. For me to want Him more than I want answers. The third thing I must leave here with is a steadfast faith that there is no limit, no limit to what Jesus can do in my life. Because folks, ultimately, the place we put a limit on Christ is the place we quit. We want to hold on to a steadfast faith. There is no limit on Jesus. Jesus Christ he is the son of the living God. He is the Messiah. He has power over life and death. He will raise you from the dead. Let's make life all about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to do just that? Give us the discipline, the focus, the control to be able to walk through all of the events of this day, all of the events of tomorrow and this week ahead, and just be continually asking, how can God be seen here? How can I speak? How can I react? How can I do something that shows the greatness of God? Lord, would you bring me to the place of desiring you more than the answer to the prayer? Oh, Lord, you are so worthy, so worthy of life being all about you. I pray my trust in that shows you how worthy you are. I pray my trust in that fact shows the world how worthy you are. You are the resurrection and the life. You are my God. May there not be a single incident in my life that I don't look at through you. I need your help, Lord, because I tend to look at everything through myself. Help me. Give me eyes to see what you see, to understand what you understand. And God, give me faith when you choose not to give me the eyes and the understanding. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray this. Amen.